Private lending is so hot right now. No, I know I'm not Ben Stiller and Zoolander, but private lending is on top of everyone's mind in a good way and a negative way, depending on the nature of who you are and if you're using a private loan or you're investing in private loans right now. Nonetheless, it's also something that's completely and commonly confused with other types of lenders. So we took the time today to really break down the basics of private lending, what it is, who it impacts, what the uses are, and what you need to consider. This is so important. It doesn't matter if you're a homeowner, a future homeowner, or especially an investor, a real estate agent, anybody else for that matter, you need to understand the basics of this type of lending. It's another tool in the tool belt, and we're gonna break this down to you. As always, the guys here at Thrive Mortgage Co. are excited to present to you the best educational information so you can make educated decisions about your future financial situation and your wealth goals. If you haven't done so already and you're loving this podcast or you're finding value, do us a favor and do a couple of things. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. That is how people find us and we want to find more people. And of course, share us out on Instagram. Tag us. Let us know you're loving it. We have an Instagram account at the YBR Remo Show or you can tag at Thrive Mortgage Co. Thank you so much. Enjoy the episode. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. So private lending, private lending, that's a scary word for a lot of people. And for a lot of people, it's just quite literally something that they don't understand or even know about. Now, the reason that private lending is really top of mind right now is well there's a lot of reasons uh first and foremost um you know we're seeing situations where private lending for a client makes more sense than it does uh for almost any circumstance in the past now that's partially because of the stress test in some situation because they have a crazy low interest rate and in other situations because they're in a financially tough position and need to find a way to reduce their overall monthly expenses but whatever that situation is we are seeing a lot more private lending right now now, I think where we start off in this episode is a discussion around the specifics of like what is what is a private lender, maybe some of the different examples of the hierarchy of private lenders, and then walk through what that looks like from a client perspective, you know, what might they know about it, and of course, we'll touch on uh, investors and what they might be looking for. So Dean, since this is a conversation that you've had a lot in the past, and well, I guess we all have had recently, perhaps you can give us a, a Coles notes of what uh, exactly a private lender is. Typically, what we would consider a private lender would be a mortgage investment corporation. Uh, a lot of people in our industry would refer to that as a MIC. And that is typically where we're going because they are more of an institutionalized private lender opposed to just an individual that's lending their money. A lot of, a lot of clients, uh, borrowers that we come across that have maybe never used a private lender when you say the word private lender, they think of literally a man with a briefcase um, lending you the money. And that's that's certainly not the case. I mean, it, it is in some cases, it, it, you know, we certainly will look to individuals that will lend their money on a specific property to a specific borrower. But I would say probably more than nine times out of 10, we are going to a, a mortgage investment corporation, which is structured very similar to a bank. Um, they are uh, very much a business um, institution that is taking investors money um, essentially you're investing your money with this 
um, with this corporation, and they're they're essentially taking those pool of funds and lending them out um, to borrowers, like with situations that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I think you're right. A lot of people, when we think about private lending, it's usually like something big and scary or just unknown. And anything generally speaking unknown can often be a scary term, especially when you see the news and articles posted up in the news around private lenders and and the I guess the high rates and high fees and uh, obviously things going sideways with different types of products. I think it's important to note that we see just as many articles like that around big banks and credit unions and other alternative lenders. And so for most people, the only difference is they've never personally had an experience with a private lender. So they don't really understand kind of where it comes in. Why does a private lender make sense in any financial situation? And, uh, you know, how could I ever go to a private lender? And what's interesting about that is, you know, again, I think a lot of people think that you know, I would never, I would never need that. You know, I don't have any poor credit issues. I don't um, have any problems with my financial situation. And the reality is it's not always about that. It's more to do with the tool at the time. So Derek, you were mentioning earlier today, now more than ever, you're seeing more situations where it makes sense for someone to consider the possibility of a private mortgage. Perhaps you can discuss a couple of those situations and examples as to where you're seeing these options make sense for a consumer. Yeah, I mean, we recently came out of an extremely, extremely busy market, and we saw a very quick change in our local market anyways. And and that was going from subject-free, deposit-in-hand, no-inspection-type market uh, over the course of probably three to four weeks. That was no longer happening. And we actually saw a lot of people, just as one example of where this could come in handy, we saw a lot of people that got, got caught on the tail end of that writing a subject-free offer planning to list their house the next week, assuming it would sell in two days like everything else. People got caught in that window. Sure enough, their house hasn't sold and it's coming up time for completion. And very few people qualify to hold two homes and two mortgages, right? Especially in an expensive area like this. Um, So we actually saw countless private lending situations where people couldn't sell their home. And again, like the thing that I tell everyone taking a private mortgage is there's always a situation, it's always a make sense situation and it's typically not a long-term situation. Nobody wants to be in a private mortgage for a long period of time. But that was one situation where private lending really, really came in handy just to tie someone over until their home did sell. Once their home sold, we would refinance with the conventional lender, right? So that was a big piece that we saw a lot of. You brought this up as well. We talked about this earlier, but a big piece is a lot of people have really cheap conventional mortgages currently. Maybe someone has a 2.5% fixed rate with three years left on it for $400,000. At the same time, a lot of people are racking up debt right now because the world is expensive, right? It's not just mortgages, it's food and groceries and gas and everything else. So we're actually talking to a lot of clients that have racked up consumer debt And your first kind of go-to is, okay, well, I've got equity in my house. I can refinance. I can pay this all off and restart, right? So we have to look at that and say, okay, does it really make sense to pay off your 2.5% mortgage and put everything into a 5.5% mortgage just to consolidate 100 grand of debt? Probably not. So we've actually done quite a few second mortgages, maybe at 10%, 11% for a smaller portion. And when you annualize that and look at the blended rate, it's working out to somewhere a lot lower than what it would have cost them to lose that existing mortgage, right? So that's a pretty common situation. And just last thing is qualification. Like we talk about this all the time. There's, there's a lending, there's alternative and B lending, and then there's private. And honestly, like for conventional mortgages, like you're taking a 5.8% conventional mortgages, we're we're qualifying you at 7.8%. That's close to 8%. 
a lot of people do not qualify for what they want to do. And sometimes alternative lending is still not the answer. So if it's short term, like a lot of people have the mindset right now that property values are down and they want to buy something with the mindset that property values are going to go back up at some point, some people don't qualify. So, you know, if you look at it and kind of make a business case is, you know, private mortgage might allow you to do something, whereas otherwise you actually couldn't do it. So, yeah, you're going to make less money on that project, but it still allows you to do the project. Well said. Yeah, well said. Uh, something came to mind when you were talking about the blended rate, just to kind of break that apart a little bit more. Um, a blended rate, perhaps in our eyes, would be something along the lines, if we look at that, as you mentioned, 2.5%, and let's say, I'm going to make up a rate for conversational purpose, let's say 8% on a private lending term. We could look at the amount of money you're borrowing on that, you know, let's say $700,000 on your first mortgage and 100000 on the second. And that blended rate might be, say, 4.5% when you add in, you know, the fees and so forth over the course of another year. Whereas, again, if you refinance, you not only have the penalties and the fees sometimes, again, this is where it sometimes makes sense, you would obviously be used committing to a new term at 55 or 6% or whatever that amount is. So, yeah, that's been interesting to look at that and say, actually, yeah, it does make sense, especially with smaller mortgages or smaller second position mortgages, which perhaps like, Dean, maybe we'll just talk on for a second, like a second position mortgage, because a lot of people don't fully understand what does that mean? Because when I say second mortgage, people think you're buying a second property. And that's what we're talking about here. This is actually like a second position mortgage. And this is with, again, all the situations Derek mentioned and more. Yeah. So, I mean, again, to just echo Derek's point, to like a lot of the theme of what he was saying is it's just a much more flexible op option for financing. And, uh, and, and a lot of the times it does come in the form of a second mortgage. And, and what that essentially means is it's a mortgage sitting in second position on title. And so whenever you go and get a mortgage with a bank um, to purchase a home, it's, it's pretty much always going to be in first position. And what that means is that they have first priority on title. So in the event that that home was sold um, for any reason, but especially foreclosure, the first position lender gets their money in full before the second position lender gets any money back. So in the event that the home was sold in foreclosure for less than what debt is owed on title, Again, the first position lender is going to get all their money back before a dollar goes to the second position lender. And so because of that, second position lending is considered far more risky for from a lender's perspective. And another reason why a lot of you know private lenders are utilized for secondary funds or secondary position funds is banks won't register in second position behind another bank. So as an example, you go to your bank and say, hey, I want a second mortgage. I don't want to touch, you know, my first position mortgage because I got a great interest rate, um, like like in the example that uh, Derek had, had explained. Well, maybe that maybe your bank just says, no, you know what, you don't qualify. And, you know, maybe another bank would qualify you, but that other bank won't go in second position for those risky reasons that I mentioned. And in those cases, that's that's a big reason why we're going to a, a private lenders just because we need the second position um, financing. No doubt. And I think like that explanation is really good. There's a lot of reasons that, that banks don't typically want to have be in a second position behind another bank. The nature of most large banks and institutions that you're looking at aren't, they're not really looking for anything, quote unquote, even remotely close to risky. They're looking for the safe money, the first position mortgage, like you mentioned, they underrate based on B20 guidelines. They want to make sure your income is good. Your assets are good. Like it's a very strict lending process. So their objective goal is not to, they have zero desire to have any risk at all. All they're looking is for a triple A 
a quadruple A situation. And even if you're a quadruple A borrower, it still comes down at the end of the day, like you you mentioned, is they don't take any chances with potentially not getting paid out in the event that you foreclose on your property, which is a huge consideration for these banks, especially in any types of down markets. Even if it's extremely rare in Canada, it still does happen from time to time. Um, so some examples where Derek had mentioned previously around adding a second mortgage to consolidate debt. Another area that I'm actually seeing this, and we're doing this right now for a client, is uh, in, in purchasing, uh, believe it or not, investment property. Due to these stress test rates, it's making it harder and harder for people to qualify for a loan. And there's a client I'm working with right now where, well, they have enough cash or capital because we've already got their home equity line of credit and they don't necessarily qualify based on conventional lending guidelines. We were able to put a, a private mortgage on this property for them uh, and one in particular that they're going to be doing a, a renovation and then renting it out later. And we'll be looking to refinance it at a later time. Now, this strategy can work in almost any market. Like it's a BRR strategy. We've done podcasts about this. But specifically right now, especially when qualification is challenging and you know that you can make the numbers work, it works. And the, and the neat thing about it is like they don't really need a lot. They need an appraisal. They need your your proof that you work to some degree. Uh, identification, some basic information, and you're approved. You don't need to go through so many different hoops. And so for a lot of people, that's worth its weight in gold too. I want to secure the property, make sure I own it, do the renovations, and then later I'll try to qualify when I know I have the rental income on that property as well. So that's that's been um, a great opportunity for a couple of the borrowers I'm working with right now. Yeah, you make two good points there. And just one I wanted to touch on is, you know, sometimes we see appraisals come back and the property is in really poor condition, but your plan is to renovate, which kind of ties into what Alex was mentioning there. Sometimes banks will say, no, this property is in really poor condition. We're not going to finance this property in today's state. Boom. You really want that property? Let's put a private mortgage in place, temporarily fix it up, refinance afterwards. Um, so I just want to say that's one reason that one thing that comes up a lot, uh, remediated grow ops that haven't been remediated properly. Sometimes it's worth it. You're getting a big discount on the property and you can put the money in and fix it up properly. Uh, and then you're going to see a, a, an increased value, of course. Um, next thing I just wanted to touch on here was Alex talked about uh, qualifying with a private lender. So I think this is where, you know, there's a lot of oversight as well. A lot of people might listen to what Alex just said and think like, oh my gosh, that's extremely risky. You don't really need to qualify and, you know, they don't really ask for much. That's correct. They don't ask for a lot, but they do need some reasonability. They do need to understand that if you have mortgage payments, you can make them, whether that be cash in a bank account, or maybe you're a business owner that claims no income, but we can prove via bank statements that you can actually afford the payment. Private lenders are not in the business of going into foreclosure. It does them no good. It's going to delay uh, their returns. It's going to have a, there's going to be a legal battle as much as they probably won't actually lose any money in that situation. It's a nightmare for them, and they don't want to look bad in the eye of the public. They don't want to be on the news forecla foreclosing on a, you know, an elderly woman or man. So, I just wanted to bring up a couple points. I've been chatting with a few different uh, larger mortgage investment corporations recently, and one of them does hundreds and hundreds of mortgages every year. And currently, they only have two in foreclosure, right? And those are safe mortgages that are in foreclosure. They're one-off situations. Um, so just in regards to qualifying with a private lender, as much as there isn't a lot of verification, it still needs to make sense. If it doesn't make sense, the lender will not do it. If there's no reasonability, the lender won't do it. If there's no exit strategy, the lender won't do it. The exit strategy is really key because that's the lender saying, okay, we'll give you this money temporarily because of this situation you're in, but how do we get our money back? 
And if there's no good strategy, number one, if you're a client and your broker hasn't talked about an exit strategy, you should reconsider taking that private mortgage because the last thing you want to be held in is an eight or 9% loan forever. Like that's not sustainable, right? In most situations. I just want to touch on a couple scenarios that we see come up quite commonly. And, and number one would be arrears with taxes. So as an example, a self-employed individual or somebody that earns a, you know, a significant amount of income per year may owe CRA a large amount of money for taxes and going in for financing with any bank can, that, that can be a, almost an immediate deal killer in almost all situations. So if you owe CRA for back taxes, we do see quite regularly private lenders come to the table with a secondary mortgage to pay the taxes out and then look to refinance in short order back with the bank and pay that second mortgage off. So I see that reason a lot. And then the other one I wanted to touch on was spousal buyouts. We have a lot of cases where we're dealing with uh, divorces are, are definitely at a, at a higher rate than, than normal right now. And we're seeing clients that want to buy out the spouse and they just don't have the ability to qualify to do so. And they want to maintain their family home maybe um, for a period of time, or they want to just take advantage of, you know, maybe not jumping back into the market and just, you know, essentially just resetting for a, a period of time and then looking to sell at a later date or looking to refinance at a later date when their finances are in better shape. And so we're seeing second mortgages for just spousal buyouts or first position mortgages in general with a private lender for the for the purpose of buying out the spouse. Yeah, no doubt. And I think ultimately back to your point there, uh, again, Derek made a good point. Not everybody out there is looking for um, like private lenders. They're not all necessarily interested in every property. And the the unique thing about this is, and I think this is where it's so important to understand the specifics of uh, private lenders and how they operate, is that it's it's kind of like each bank has its own guideline, but there's only so many conventional banks out there, right? Private lenders, quite literally, there's hundreds if not thousands of private lenders of all different types of sizes and they almost all have a very unique type of you know situation the down payment requirements the property types the locations and some of them have niches so the neat thing about that is you know just obviously having some experience there is that you know we obviously often have the ability to work with different private lenders who will do properties like you said that a bank won't even do or finance a situation that a bank won't i mean we've had a situation in the past where you know, a client purchased a property where it was literally like almost, I shouldn't say torn completely to the studs, but it was like, you know, there was no drywall and there was things missing and no bank would qualify uh, or finance that at all. But the client saw a huge investment opportunity and the private lender was willing to take uh, the position of financing this particular property. And of course, uh, uh, help letting them do the renovation, completing the financing, and then of course, uh, getting them out to rent a refinance with a conventional bank. So a lot of different reasons. Those are some things that I think we're going to see a little bit more of in the near future. But I think let's talk about one thing that's really key that a lot of people don't really understand, which is loan value. Now, typically when a borrower is looking to purchase a property or, 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 or buy a second home or investment property, they don't ever think about the terminology of loan to value. That's like a mortgage banker talk or a mortgage broker talk or an underwriter talk. So when it comes to this concept of loan to value, I mean, Derek, maybe you could touch on this for a second here. Like, why, why do you think like from a, I guess from a borrower's perspective or a consumer's perspective, like why is understanding that concept more so important right now um, of, of this loan to value? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with the fact that you could buy a primary residence with 5% down if the property is under $500,000, like 5% down, you're literally putting almost no money into that. 
and the bank is putting up all of the money, right? And the banks are able to do that and CMHC and the other insurers are able to get involved and back that situation because of the verification you have to go through with a bank. Like it is dialed. You have to have perfect credit, right? And you have to have very strong, stable income that they're literally ripping apart trying to find holes in. If you can get through that, banks and the insurer, they're comfortable giving you that financing because there's very little risk, like Alex mentioned earlier. So on the private side, because that that level of in-depth verification is not there, they don't really care if you have bad credit. They don't care if your income doesn't really align as long as we can justify some, some reasonability. Um, but because they don't have that and because they're taking the risks that the banks aren't, they want a higher uh, level of equity in the property. So if you're buying, they need more down payment. If you're refinancing, there needs to be more equity than a, than a bank would want to see. Uh, and the reasoning behind that is like we talked about second mortgages and foreclosure and how that works. Private lender says, okay, we're taking some risk. There's a much higher chance this mortgage could go sideways. These people actually could get, their, get themselves into a position where they cannot pay us. And if that happens, we need to make sure that there is enough equity in the property that we won't lose a dime and our investors won't lose a dime, which we'll talk about, right? So typically in a down market like this, lenders probably want at minimum 25% down probably even more in a market where property values are declining because they know that in two months it, that property could be worth even less than today so just to kind of explain the mindset there with foreclosure let's say someone's uh, interest only payment private lending is typically an interest only payment there's no point paying principal it's you're not going to make that much headway anyways um, let's say it's two thousand dollars a month if someone today cannot make their mortgage payments anymore that $2,000 a month of interest is going to build up every single month. And it's eating away at the equity in the property until the property is sold or that mortgage is refinanced, right? So if it's a foreclosure where lawyers are getting involved, that is where this could drag out for a year. It could drag out for three years, depending on when that property sells, right? And that's why private lenders want specific prop. They want good properties. They don't want some cabin with no electricity in the middle of nowhere because if that goes into foreclosure there's probably not a big pool of people that want to buy it right so they want marketable properties with a good chunk of equity to to um, basically put a safety net around their investment they're sticking their necks out doing us all a favor when we need it and they just want to make sure it's a safe investment and even if it does go wrong they won't lose any money because there is enough equity yeah it's a good point and then marketability it comes to a common theme with that we see in almost every private lender's guidelines it's gonna it's gonna usually say urban areas only um they're looking for areas that have high population because that typically means there's going to be a higher turnover and they're always looking at their worst case scenario they're they're as much as to your point you mentioned you know a lot of these lenders don't have many issues and they don't they're not dealing with foreclosure they have to look at it as a worst case scenario and they pretty well go into every deal assuming that they're, they're going to have to sell that property that's how they evaluate it and they are not going to sell a home located on 50 acres in let's say a 100 mile house as quick as they're going to sell a two-bedroom condo in downtown vancouver and and for those reasons they want to be able to to turn that property over very quickly if they have to sell it and this is where it really comes in handy to to work with a ton of different lenders like just to give you an example that 50 acre property in 100 mile if you're a broker that doesn't do a lot of this business and you're going to go to like the top 10 that everybody knows they're probably all going to decline it we have lenders that would do that we have lenders that will do mobile homes in 100 mile right and these lenders this is where it gets really creative on the private lending side 
these lenders will actually create a mortgage investment corporation for small towns because they understand small towns, whereas the big players might not go there. You're always going to pay a premium and there's way fewer options when it comes to lenders for that kind of stuff. Um, but that's where it can get a little bit more creative than the banks, right? The banks don't really have these different arms. So just like anything else, there's some drawbacks or downsides to private lending. Um, as I mean, we could probably go on for a period of time. I think the biggest downside for me about private lending is what you mentioned already, which is about the ability to get out of the product. Like a lot of people don't realize that, for example, you know, there's a lot of situations where someone gets put into a private loan because it's interest only payments or zero payments with a reserve. Um, and they have no ability to get out. Now, Sometimes that's just purely based on someone's financial situation. And sometimes that's based a little bit more on, you know, the questions, you know, like, for example, we have some people who uh, perhaps, you know, got a private loan a year ago, and now the property value is dipped, and it's become more difficult for them to get out. Now, that's nothing to do with uh, the, the client, or in this case, us for that matter, it's, it's the market conditions, but you need to be aware of that going into it, which is really important. The second consideration is a private lender could quite literally uh, demand their money back at the end of the term, a one-year term. They could say, hey, we want to get our money back now. It's been a year. We want you to pay us out. And of course, that's their right to do so. You signed a one-year commitment. And it's it's not that a bank couldn't do that, but the reality is, is a bank wouldn't likely do that unless they absolutely had to do that. Right? So that's one thing you should, say, you should think about. I mean, again, just like anything else, it's a tool. You got to know what you're getting into. Any other things that you would suggest people looking out for when it comes to private lenders? I'd say one thing I'd look out for is is just that you, you made a really good point in regards to one-year terms. Really understanding that document that you're signing is really important. And and, and why that's important is is, is if, it, if you are coming up for renewal, as an example, there could be fees involved. And knowing what that cost is going to be to renew if you have to renew it is very important. Some lenders will charge you fees just to renew your mortgage every year. So that interest rate, that high interest rate that you're, you know, you're stomaching and budgeting for the year, it could be more than that when you come to maturity. I, I would find a lot of lenders, a lot of private lenders are expecting their clients to renew at least one more year. So the fear of your lender not renewing you and wanting their money back is going to be very rare, but it's very common that they'll charge another set of fees to renew that term. And so just knowing what that cost is, is very important. And, uh, and, and what we're seeing quite regularly now is just knowing that the timeline is going to be probably a little bit longer, just given the interest rate market that we're in. A lot of people's exit strategy is to refinance and you still may not qualify to refinance in a year because the rates might still be higher than what we're normally used to in a year's time. And so if that's the case, you know, may, you may want to negotiate a two year term upfront opposed to, um, a one-year term and, and having the, you know, the fear of what you mentioned of them not wanting to renew or having to pay fees and renew. So I would just be, be aware of, you know, your ability to negotiate is probably better now up front than in a year when you have no real choice. I was just going to say the one thing I think that uh, from a borrower's perspective and, and even a broker, uh, you should be paying attention to who the lender is, right? Like we've talked about mortgage investment corporations. These are regulated funds um, that have offering memorandums and and it's structured right like they have a renewal department that will deal with it uh, there's a lot of people that have been kind of slowly getting into lending their personal funds like i could go and lend fifty thousand dollars in a second mortgage to somebody you have to be careful in those situations because that person that you're getting the money from 
probably isn't very sophisticated in real estate. A lot of them probably are, but a lot of them probably are not. And someone could have literally lent their last $50,000 thinking that's going to help them financially. And in a year or even in six months, they realize they need that back, right? And they're going to force you to pay that mortgage out when really a mortgage investment corporation or a good sophisticated lender would have renewed you, which would have saved you a ton of money, right? Because when you have to switch lenders after a year, you're paying fees again, legal fees, all that kind of stuff, appraisals. Yeah. And there's, I mean, listen, there are situations, I, I have one with a client right now where quite simply, you have no choice. They've got to get out. Uh, they have to move over to another lender. And again, the market has kind of put them in this position, whether it's because of a reduction in property valuation or other items. So the big key to that piece is, and, and then again, I'm going to leave you with this, is if you're in a, it's more if you're in a private loan, is to be prepared, have the conversations early. Thankfully, we were able to start talking with these guys a month or two early, and it gave us enough time to be able to find another solution for them. Um, but that's something that so many people don't do. I mean, I, I know that we don't deal with as much of that as perhaps we used to. Uh, but in the past, we, you know, we'd get phone calls from individuals saying, hey, I'm uh, you know, one week out and I, I have a private lender and I've got no other options. You're not giving yourself enough time. So think about that. Now, back to kind of like, again, uh, just kind of end off on a, on a positive point here with a couple more juicy points and so forth. Uh, private lenders do make sense. The size of the private lender is important for you to understand. So make sure if you don't know, ask a question from your broker. Hey, uh, you know, what are these guys about? Where are they located? Uh, is there a rough estimate to how big these are, are as a company? Um, I mean, there's only so much information that you can provide, but I think these are good questions that as a, a borrower or even a real estate agent for your borrower, you should be asking. Um, the other point is, and this is something I will touch on, is ask for transparency in fees. There are always fees in a private mortgage. That's where they make most of the money. It's like you only have them loan for typically six to 12 months on average. So that's where they make their money is in fees, right, uh, to get it set up. And that's very uh, understandable and reasonable. However, there are unreasonable fees. And as a borrower, you need to be careful that you're not getting charged an exorbitant amount of money. I've seen loans of $100,000 where someone was getting paid, charged twelve dollars to $15,000 on a $100,000 loan. Um, and I'm not talking about a risky loan either. I'm talking about a very straightforward or, you know, and obviously that's a 12 to 15% fee, uh, percentage. Uh, typically, most lenders will have a minimum. You know, let's call it twenty five hundred per the, the broker and the lender, and that would be around five thousand dollars maximum as an example. Um, but I think that commonly, I have seen situations, and in fact, I'm talking to someone right now where they were charged upwards of eight to ten percent of a two hundred thousand dollar loan in fees on a, a, a file, which should not have been charged anywhere near that. You need to work with someone who is uh, transparent. And providing you good advice because if someone's just there to try and get that money again it's not common but you got to ask at least the questions and make sure that you get a good answer yeah those are good points i think we've mentioned a lot of good stuff on this episode from a borrower's perspective and i know we get a lot of questions in regards to the investment side people that are looking to invest their own funds in say a mortgage investment corporation or or look at lending their own money and managing it themselves, which we've actually done an episode on in the past about lending your own money. And I think it would be a good idea, especially in this market and where things are at now to circle back and, and do another episode just on how to evaluate you know, where to invest your funds when it comes to a mortgage investment corporation, what to look out for. And a lot of these things, I mean, like, you know, what you just mentioned in regards to fees and unreasonable fees, these are things that even from an investor's perspective, you probably wouldn't want to be a part of such a, 
you know, an operation that does things like that. And so um, we'll, maybe we'll save that for another episode where we will dive into, you know, the pros and cons and, and what to look for um, when investing in a MIC. Yeah, I think that's a great idea for a future episode. So if you guys are thinking about whether or not it makes sense to use a private loan for the purposes of buying an investment property or setting yourself up for success, I mean, we didn't even give quantifiable numbers. We'll do that in another episode here to share how much, uh, obviously, interest that you can save. You're just generally wondering, and you're a real estate agent and looking for someone who has knowledge about these types of things. You're looking for a better partner in the industry, especially during these times when your clients well, listen, your clients are always really important, but now more than ever, it's important to align yourselves with the best of the best. And we believe that we uh, we are that. So reach out to us at Thrive Mortgage Co., thrivemortgage.ca, at Thrive Mortgage Co. on Instagram. Send us a DM, fill out the form, either or. Happy to set up an appointment and chat with you about your situation or anyone else. And I hope you have a great day. Enjoy the episode, and we'll talk to you soon.